0: Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the global merchant and investment bank. Today, Vivek Shah, the CEO of diversified information and services company J2 Global, and Liontree CEO Aryeh Borkhoff have an in-depth conversation virtually on J2's strategy and the success of its far-reaching portfolio. The LA-based company reaches over 180 million people monthly via their brands such as IGN, Mashable, Humble Bundle, and of course speed test which if you're like me you've probably been using a lot as well as its cloud services business and here's a reminder that you can stay current on the day's most thoughtful insightful and entertaining content by subscribing to our daily newsletter take a break with kindred media just click on the link in our show notes and now, here's Aryeh and Vivek. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation on leadership and beyond in the middle of the COVID crisis.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Aryeh Borkoff, CEO and founder of Liontree. Welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm sitting down this morning virtually with Vivek Shaw, the CEO of J2 Global the publicly traded tech company based in L.A. with 3,000-plus employees across 50 offices that reaches almost 180 million people per month, over 1,000 advertisers, and across 40-plus brands. Vivek has been at its helm since January of 2018, after J2 purchased tech publisher Ziff Davis, which Vivek bought in 2010. J2 has made over 180 acquisitions since its founding in 1985. Over the past 10 years, the company has put over $3 billion to work in sectors such as media, like Mashable, Mag, for example, health, everyday health, security, marketing technology, and communications, such as eFax. So Vivek, you've been quite busy. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here, Ari. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I want to start this conversation first. You can see I'm starting the move outside but we've been sheltering in place for basically nine weeks here and the environment is very much in flux we're at the very early stages of opening up the road to recovery will be no doubt very long how are you feeling right now how are you coping how are you doing yeah you
2: know we're i'm um, personally i'm doing fine look I, i'm i'm with my family we are healthy Uh, we are happy and we're together. And so more than anything else, I find myself, I consider myself to be very fortunate. And then I think more broadly as a company and as an organization, I think we're showing a fair amount of resilience, I think a lot of determination. The organization also is healthy. We were early in getting people out of the 60 locations we have worldwide. And I've said to the organization, while we were early to get out, we're likely going to be late to go back. You know, I think we're fortunate. We're amongst the companies where essentially everything we do is digital. How we produce products and services, how we deliver products and services, how we market products and services, it's all digitally done. So we're in a position to allow those that aren't similarly situated to be the first to go back so that we're not clogging public transport and we're not clogging elevators and the streets in which we operate. So, Look, I think, relatively speaking, we're doing well, and we
1: recognize that that's a privilege. You mentioned, obviously, you live in the digital domain, and now we're living in a virtual domain. But certainly, there's been a different dynamic in place here. So, Has your management approach or your philosophy of management changed at all or evolved at all during the lockdown? How have you been leading the team differently during the lockdown?
2: Interesting. I would say that I'm probably more visible now than I was prior to the pandemic. And that is manifests through a lot of zooms. We use a platform called Workplace which is Facebook's platform for companies where we're posting live streams and videos and just keeping the company connected in that way. Obviously email, just using every digital tool available to me to have my presence felt and my leadership team's presence felt. So I Was at a recent board meeting, and I did make the remark that I think the relationship between the company and its employees has never been stronger, and we're feeling that, and we're seeing it in the feedback from companies. So, as I look at silver linings in all of this, that is absolutely one of them, and I think it's demonstrated that this sort of being virtually visible can be done and can be achieved. So, I think. That's been a key aspect of the experience that we've had. Now, look, I also think that people are restless, and we're hearing that, and they'd like to get back to some form of normalcy, and so we're going to try to figure out what that looks like, and it's a different answer depending on the location we're in. It's a different answer based on the job function that you have. I think the key word in all of this is flexibility. I think what everyone has demonstrated uh, in the business community and societally in general is a high degree of flexibility. And that's something we're gonna wanna hold on to when this pandemic is behind us. And so we're looking at policies and approaches that embrace flexibility.
1: And by the way, I similarly feel close to the employees of the firm during this moment. And I'm looking at policies to sustain not only the continuity around a digital virtual format, but also ways to keep myself energized to the same degree because you do feel especially close in these moments to your people yeah. and the key thing is not having it just be for the moment it has to be something that it can sustain from here i feel that's as much for me as for them
2: i think that's absolutely right
1: yeah so you reported earnings about a week ago and all the companies that are reporting earnings during this period are providing very interesting commentary around COVID 19 and the crisis and also getting a pass for investors, rightly so, because of the current environment being so catastrophic for business continuity today. But obviously, COVID-19, as you talked about on the earnings call, has affected businesses across media and technology and and essentially every industry. So what is your outlook for the rest of 2020? Do you think there's going to be a speedy bounce back? Or are we in for a bumpy ride? And I know it's difficult to say, and usually, it'll be more gradual. But there is a feeling of restlessness, as you mentioned, and our people, but also from a business perspective, people want to get back, I feel.
2: Yeah, they do. It's hard to predict. And and I do, I think, still think at this stage, it's a lot of guesswork. What I can say is what are we observing now? And what can we learn from what we're observing now? And what might that mean for the not too distant future? So there are positives and negatives. There are headwinds and there are tailwinds that we're experiencing. I'll start on the positive side. We operate in the healthcare space. We sell a fair amount of pharmaceutical advertising. The pharma industry is really strong right now, and it's amazing how the public perception of pharma has really changed. It's almost been a 180 through this pandemic. Just a couple of months ago, it was all discussions about price transparency and price gouging, and it's turned into all of the clinical trials, and this is going to be the industry that develops treatment, and vaccinations. And by the way, that's true. This is the industry that we're going to rely on in great part to get us to a position of safety. So what we're experiencing in our own business is the strength of that. But then there are specific things that happen. More of pharmaceutical marketing is actually done targeting providers than it is targeting patients. Even though I'm sure we all see the pharmaceutical ads on television and on the internet, the reality is they spend a lot more Financing and employing pharma sales reps to go out and meet doctors. That's called detailing in the industry. That's over. And I don't think that comes back. So, what happens now is all of that detailing money has gone digital. And that's through websites and through email and through webinars. And we happen to be in that business. So, that part of our business is doing really, really well. So, we have the healthcare industry where I see some interesting things happening. We own a VPN business. That's all privacy and security. So all of our privacy and security businesses seem to benefit from an environment like this because what you have is entire workforces that have gone from a controlled physical environment to a somewhat uncontrolled personal environment. And so how do companies use tools like ours to secure those environments? So we've seen some positivity there. And then even in the ads business, as I kind of mentioned, it's category specific but it's also customer specific. You mentioned at the introduction, we largely deal with large advertisers, 1,100 enterprise level spenders. They're holding up better than the longer tail. We don't have four, five million customers as many of the platforms do. And if you had that many customers, obviously a number of those customers would be in local retail where the impact has been devastating. We see some things that I would put into the, Tailwinds category. Now, in the headwinds category, you've got a few things going on. I mean, I think anything that requires physical contact is under pressure. So, we have a lead gen business. We generate leads for technology vendors. They don't need leads right now where they can't do the in person demo, they can't have the in person meeting. So, we'll feel pressure on something like that. Anything field sales and orientation has been more challenging. Luckily for us, and it's really luck more than design. Most of our sales model is light touch. It's phone-based and web-based acquisition of customers. But where it's field Salesforce-based, we're feeling some challenges. And then I think certain categories and certain app categories are under more pressure. So I think it's a mixed bag. I don't think it's all bad. And in our own reporting, we had strong Q1. We were either above or in line with analyst estimates. And we talked about our April and our April will be essentially flat year over year, which considering the mix of businesses that we're in, I actually think is heroic.
1: It is heroic. And you do have scale. You have revenue of over $700 million and EBITDA over $250 million. So you have scale. And to sustain that during this period is obviously uh, heroic. And and, and that's just
2: in in the media business. Overall, 1.4 $1.4 of revenue, $553 million of EBITDA on a 12-month basis for the company. And yeah, by the way, right. I think that's a key for us is that we have portfolio diversification.
1: And for the healthcare example, and I know we have these crosswinds of physical and digital, but when things go digital, I'm assuming on a thematic level and a strategy level, you welcome that because it's Absolutely. obviously your competency. But when things go digital from physical, it also sometimes brings a lower price point and potentially loses some of its premium value. Is that concerning, or is that transition helpful to you? certainly
2: concerning if I were in the analog version of that business, right? If I was trading analog dollars for digital dimes to use in you know, an old but good one, I, yeah. I guess that would be problematic, but that's not us, right? So for us, we are the digital insurgent that wants to win market share. So I agree with you. Healthcare embracing digital transformation is actually the first theme when I was on my earnings call talking about What are the themes that we see emerging out of this? That was the first one. And I think it benefits not just our everyday health digital media business, but it also benefits our cloud services businesses that deal with secure delivery of medical records and the free movement of medical records, what's called interoperability in the healthcare world. We're at the center of that. And we think this pandemic really does Illustrate and underscore the need for this in healthcare. And I think healthcare is at the point where it recognizes that it needs to do this. Historically, healthcare has always been slow. It's so many different stakeholders, so many different pieces, but fundamentally, also, the patient journey is going to change. The way you get care, and the way I get care, and the way your listeners get care is fundamentally going to change and has changed.
1: Yeah, but healthcare is one key area that you could see digitization now becoming an accelerant to where the industry should already have been going, and now will go faster because of this crisis. I would say education is another one. Um, yeah. Before we get into, obviously, the details of Jade, too, I mean, it seems like big picture education, all of our children are now obviously learning remotely, and they have a huge infection rate risk if they get back to schools. That could sustain in a lot of ways. Do you think education is ripe for digitization?
2: No, I think it absolutely is. In fact, you know, just as a focus group of four, my four children here who are engaged in schooling from home, they each separately said, you know, the answer is probably in between. They miss the in-person, community-based, being with their teacher, being with their friends, but they also recognize the efficiency that comes with what is essentially this virtual education. And I think they're right. I think you're going to find that balance. And I think that's a process, is to shift in the way various education systems work, but I agree with you. I think you're going to see more and more of that. And I think sometimes it's like anything else. I've said to my team, we've talked a lot about remote work. Prior to the pandemic, 12% of our population was working remotely. And we were developing ideas about how to increase that for a variety of reasons. That right. was pre-pandemic? Those pre-pandemic. We were talking about it. And if, I, if we didn't have a pandemic, it would probably be still a year later, and we'd still be talking about it. But sometimes being thrust into a situation forces you to accommodate and adapt, and then you come out of it with epiphany. And the epiphany for many of us on the work from home front is, wow, this works really well. I think the same in education. I think everyone's having the epiphany of there are aspects of this that aren't optimal, but then there are aspects of it that are. And finding that hybrid, I think, is going to be interesting. So I agree with you. I think
1: there'll be a lot of business opportunity in the digitization and in e-learning. So you mentioned before, it's also a mixed bag for our society, our time. We have, obviously, jobless claims that keep going up. Every time I feel like I do a podcast, each one is very special. The numbers keep going higher. Even the last numbers, I think, were 2.4 million more unemployed week to week. And so our numbers are plus 30 million... And you made news back in February when you said that business leaders need to understand that it's not an equal playing field. So talk to me about this. And now have you updated that view, obviously, given everything that's
2: happened? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that this pandemic has revealed what I was trying to say in February, which is the disparities in our society are extraordinary and continue to just grow wider. And even the experience that we're all going through this pandemic, our ability to have roles that are digital roles, our ability to be in homes where work from home is tenable, our ability to devote time to our children for their education. These are luxuries and these are largely the province of the rich. And when I say the rich, I mean broadly speaking on a global level. I think this exposes that and there's real pain in society and you can be in conversations with people and not always feel that and see that and hear that. For some, this is such a devastating set of events. And think about what their personal recovery might look like. Forget business recovery, but how is that going to work? And so look, I think it exposes some of the disparities that exist. I think that as an organization, what we've focused a lot of the energy around really from the beginning of the pandemic is what can we do to support the communities in which we operate? You know, when we think about the four key vectors or the four key stakeholder groups, employees, shareholders, customers in our community, we've really been focused on the community aspect of this. And that can be a variety of things, right? It's everything from what products and services can we put out there for free for people to use. So we have free VPN, we have free video conferencing. We have a bunch of things like that that we've just put out there to raising money through our whole bundle platform. We raised six and a half million dollars, which is great in literally a week's time to making sure that our content and we've invested a fair amount of money in our health content to make sure we are able to provide really reliable content, right? Content that is, I think, not hyperbolic, is not designed to generate traffic. It's really designed to inform. So I think that mission
1: and that purpose also helps motivate our organization, right? I think this will be one of the biggest issues of our time to grapple with, which is this societal issue of division and those that could work virtually and be productive, and those that are really exposed to the everyday dynamics of this crisis. And the other one will probably be big geopolitical implications of all that. But those two things weigh on us all heavily. And I think you're right to point it out.
2: Well, and the other thing I'll just say is that we have, to this point, not had to resort to any sort of layoffs or reductions in force. And that is something that we as a company keep talking about, which is, How do we put ourselves in a position to not do what it seems like everyone who is similarly situated has been forced to do? And I understand the business realities, but how do we put ourselves in a position where we can avoid that? And so up to this point, we have, I'm proud of that fact. And a lot of that has to do with, we're really focused on our vendors and what we spend on. We are examining everything. We have an internal project called Chesapeake. Where everyone has been empowered to find savings. And you have people celebrating savings that literally are in the hundreds of dollars. Great. Let's keep doing that because across 4,000 people, we can actually take a real dent into something like that. So we've been creative. It's been a great way to bring the entire organization into the process of trying to maintain reasonable financial metrics, reasonable earnings, and cash flow.
1: We've had a similar approach at Lion Tree the way that I think about it is that there are two people that you have to evaluate during this pandemic. One is the person that is getting through it today. And two is the person that is looking back on how you got through it today, the day after it ends. And I feel like as a business leader, my responsibility is to think of myself in both those buckets and time periods all the time and narrow that chasm and narrow that gap as much as possible So that you look at not only how you operate today, but how you look back on yourself operating and were you proud of how you did it. And I think that eliminates a lot of the rash judgments and you're trying to preserve the dignity of dealing with your people all the time. And I think that'll pay dividends in the future. Plus, it's the right thing to do. I think
2: you're 100% right.
1: So uh, I'd love to talk about J2 and the company that you've really catapulted into such strength. You have two divisions of the company. You have the business cloud services division, which includes great brands like eFax, IP, Vanish, SugarSync, and many more, as well as a digital media division, which is Ziff Davis, including brands like Mashable, PC Magazine, and Everyday Health. How do you, these two divisions feed into each other, or are they operated totally independently?
2: Well, so the reason they're together, and the reason they're all part of one company is, one, they're digital businesses, They both feature highly recurring revenue. So whether it's the subscription businesses, which represent about sixty-five percent of our company is subscription based, and then the balanced is advertising based. But even on the advertising based revenues, they're highly recurring in nature. Recurring, it's the same customers. It's because we operate in these endemic categories, and so get the endemics really repeat themselves. So for us, we like the shared characteristics of highly recurring revenue. We run both segments with a lot of discipline, with an orientation profitable growth and the conversion of earnings into free cash flow. That is a staple part of what we do. You know, you talked about we've done $3 billion worth of acquisitions. $2.4 billion of that was financed by our own free cash flow. So for us, wow. what we look to do is we look to operate these businesses for cash. We use that cash to acquire businesses that we then optimize and run for cash and And that's our so-called cash flywheel. And it's worked really, really well for us. The other thing I would say is that from a skill set point of view, they're very similar. I say this all the time. We're a company of typists. You're typing content or you're typing code. But you're typing. And you're probably in front of a device like this typing. Yeah, sure, we do other things, we shoot video, et cetera, but we're typists at our core. And so I find that whether it's editorial staff or programming staff, they're very similar in a lot of ways in terms of what they need and how we recruit and how do we motivate and how do we inspire them to do what we need to get done. So I find those similarities there. And then overall, the mindset of the company, regardless of the segment, whether it's cloud services or digital media. Everything is about capital allocation and a return on invested capital. Okay. That is the company. If you said to me, What is the defining element of J2, this is a capital allocation machine.
1: The perspective is such a fleeting thing. We sat in our apartments and our home for a long time, wishing to get outside. And as soon as we get outside, the birds are the problem. You know, so <laughs> it's like you can't win, right? You can't win. You did mention something about the portfolio that bridges across both, which is the subscription nature of your portfolio is, I think you said, over 60% of your revenue is subscription-based. So it must have given you a lot of predictability, not only during this period, but always. Even the ad side, you said, is a little bit more contractual predictive. but the subscription part of this, is that very important to you? Is that unique?
2: Oh, no, I think it's absolutely important to us. Obviously, there's a stability and a predictability that comes from subscription businesses, which we value we're also seeing some really interesting relationships between media businesses and subscription businesses. So there are two things that we look for. One is when you have a media asset, does that media asset create a data exhaust that is of value to someone on a subscription basis? So the greatest example of that in our company is our Ookla business. So Ookla operates speed test. I'm sure... All of us have been speed testing constantly, either on our desktops or on our phones with our native application. It is by far the leading testing appliance out there. That was an advertising business when we acquired it. It basically ran ads as you ran tests, and it still runs ads. But what we were able to do is take that crowdsourced data and turn it into a -a data-as-a-service subscription product for carriers, for device makers, for cell tower companies. So they had an aggregate view, not a PII view, but an aggregate view of how their networks were performing at any given time of day, in any given location, against any device and operating system versus its competitive set. It is a view into the state of broadband networks that no one has. No one has this kind of view. Maybe you have a view into your own network. You certainly don't have a view into a competing network. So that's an example of what was a media business in the sense that it was an advertising-based business, and we really converted it into a subscription business, and that part of the business is far bigger than the advertising businesses is today.
1: Yeah, Oogla, just spend a minute on Oogla because it's basically speedtest.net yeah. where you effectively can determine how fast or slow your provider is giving you bandwidth and internet access, which is not only important now, but always. So talk about that for a second.
2: So it's the website, but it's actually more the mobile app. So the, the app's installed on 300 million devices, all organic. We never paid for an install, which I find remarkable. So we have a huge install base with the app. We then have a server network of basically organizations that provide us their servers, which is really important because you need a broad based server network and actually to have accurate local speed testing. So, we have, I think, over 10,000 of those worldwide. So, we offer a great product. We offer a product for free for customers to really understand how their service is behaving. Are they getting what they paid for? And then, what we're able to do, as I said, is to provide insight for providers to make sure they provide the best service to their customers. And so that's an example, again, where we bought it as a media business, it's in our media division, it's inside of Ziff Davis, it runs advertising, that's what it primarily was when we acquired it, and we said, yeah, but the data exhaust here affords a subscription opportunity that we think is unique and compelling. And the second way we think about media in relation to subscriptions is how do you leverage media to acquire subscribers? As you know, in every subscription business, the fundamental equation is your cost required customer, your CAC, against your lifetime value, your LTV. We try to use media to bend the CAC LTV equation. So what's a great example of that? We own IGN. IGN is easily the leading content brand in the world of video games. It's where gamers go to read reviews, to learn about games, improve their gameplay, etc. We acquired Humble Bundle. Great business. Great video game subscription business and now an emerging indie publisher of games. But when we acquired it, we said, you know, what is the relationship between the two? How do we leverage the database of IGN, the media of IGN and the audience of IGN to drive subscriptions for our own product. And now we do that even across segments where PCMag and Mashable are marketing our own VPN along with competing VPNs, but using our media and marketing to drive subscriptions. This isn't a new idea. This has always existed. You see it in television and you see it in the print industry where you use your own vehicles to launch new programming or new subscription services. It doesn't seem to happen as much in the digital world, which is interesting to me, or in the digital publishing world. So that's how we
1: also think about
2: the two in
1: relation to one another. Yeah. I want to get to how you take a great brand at acquisition and obviously make it a great business even more than you acquired it and your whole capital allocation and MA strategy in a few moments. But there's very few people that I know that have more experience in digital media than you, Vivek. Obviously, you spent 15 years at Time Inc., then you ran Ziv Davis, and you effectively have been building all these digital media properties. Digital media used to be like the cool, edgy term, and now it's been heavy, it's been difficult, it's been ad support in a lot of ways. It's hard to differentiate one brand from the other. How do you get advertising share? So, where's the digital media business today versus how we all grew up in it, and where's it going? And is that the right terminology even?
2: Yeah, you know, look, I'll tell you that I'm really proud that we've been able to develop a successful and sustainable model for content. When I think about the things that we've been able to accomplish as a company, I put that pretty high up because to your point, Aria, it's been difficult for digital publishers. It's been a tough environment. What have we done to make our properties succeed? I think it's a few things. First, multiple rents. We look at how do you extract rent. From your content and from your audience. And we have always looked at properties that could do more than just run brand advertising. And so in our world, we have brand advertising, we have performance advertising. And the difference between the two is in brand advertising, I sell impressions. In performance advertising, I'm selling customers. And so if you're selling customers, if you're selling leads, if you're selling transactions, which is half of our advertising business now, I think you're in a different place. So I actually draw a distinction between brand and performance within our business. And by the way, I think many publishers are starting to really embrace affiliate commerce and lead gen. But we were early in this, and I'm glad that they are because we want to see all content succeed. This is hopefully a a roadmap for many brands, but also the subscription business. You know, I grew up at Time Inc., as you mentioned you know, Time Inc. in those days made as much from its subscription and newsstand single copy business as it did from its advertising business. And it always tried to maintain that balance. I forget who said it. I've used it myself. But the subscription game is the running game and the advertising game is the passing game. And you need them both to win. I believe that. And so, as I said, for us, building subscription revenues inside of digital media has been very important. But then the commingling of digital media and software, where I can use digital media to drive my software business and vice versa. So that actually, I think, is an important statement, too. I think what's unique about J2 is that we have media and software. And I don't know of many companies that have both in the portfolio.
1: That's a great point. And the software integration with the brands and the subscription advertising complement it's something I hadn't thought about. That's exactly right. It seems like that's the panacea. And it also speaks to your flexibility point and your adaptability point in terms of having a brand be flexible in its business model. And if you can obviously create new models around it that's uh, previously unforeseen, that's helpful. And then the subscription part of the model, I think, speaks to the loyalty program that we were talking about earlier, which is you know making sure that the brands are worthy enough to create that loyalty program and have mm-hmm. people subscribe to it.
2: I think that's absolutely right. At the end of the day, we also run a very disciplined business. We are really focused on, as I said, return on spend. And whether we're spending at the operating level or a capital investment, CapEx, or an acquisition, everything we do is held to the same expectation, which is a 20% cash on cash return. So we're really, really disciplined about this. And I think it's very, very important because I think in our industry at times, there's been a tendency to chase the latest thing or the most fashionable thing to some excess. And then you end up realizing that it wasn't entirely vetted. It wasn't going to be a great return on the invested capital. And a lot of these businesses find themselves upside down.
1: Yeah, I want to get into this now because... In our lunches and our conversations, when we actually could see each other in person, we will again. Capital allocation and the CEO lens of the business is really the core job of a CEO in addition to managing people and talent. And you said you start from a very systematic way of looking at it, which is there's capital to use internally, there's capital to use inorganically, externally, and they're all based on the same criteria, which is return thresholds. You mentioned 20%. So take us through the capital allocation thought process. Obviously, you work with the board and your management team closely on it. But in a lot of ways, Tree and J2 are similar because we are M&A driven. We are capital allocated kind of animals here and making sure that we ultimately are judged by the same metrics, the same returns, which is a pure focus of business at the end of the day. And you have as much M&A expertise as anybody I've seen out there because of the number of acquisitions you made. I think you've made over... 186, acquisitions, $3 billion since 2008. I mean, you obviously are finding things inorganically as well as organically to build the flywheel. Take us through your thought process and how you allocate capital.
2: Yeah, so it starts with the way we're organized. So we have a very decentralized operating structure. We have our two segments, which are our reported segments, cloud services and digital media. We have three operating divisions, so digital media is split between Zip Davis and the Everyday Health Group. Each of those operating divisions has its own president. Underneath those presidents are a little over a dozen business units. Those business units each have a general manager. Those general managers have full P&L responsibility for their businesses. They are in charge of all marketing and product and sales and development decisions. They run their businesses, with very little interference from J2 corporate. We don't want to substitute our knowledge for theirs. They're close to the business. They're expected to run those businesses to optimize for near-term and long-term cash flow. The one thing they don't have is their own balance sheet. So all of that cash comes upstairs. And at a corporate level, we are making all of the capital allocation decisions. Why? because we have all of these business units and these divisions, as well as corporate itself, by the way, competing for that capital. And at any given time, we're really going to reward that money based on where we see the most promising projects, the most promising returns, the most promising deals. So I think it's important to understand that when we think about the J2 acquisition system, it is system L, it is programmatic, and it is built into the DNA of the company, and it's not just me and it's not just our CFO and our corporate development team. It gets spread down to the general managers and even beneath them. Having that many people focused on sourcing of deals, diligencing of deals, transacting of deals, integrating deals, and ultimately creating value, I think, is an advantage. And so, What I say to people is it's not the work of a handful of people. It's really the work of the company. Because it still goes back to our belief that in the end, if we're indifferent as to how you grow, and we're indifferent, and that makes us unique because most people prefer organic growth because the market values organic growth more, which I think, by the way, we can have a whole conversation about why I think that's misplaced, but the market does. It values organic growth. We value growth, total growth. And again, so if I'm using it to acquire a company, if I'm using it to invest in a project, To me, as long as I get the kind of cash on cash returns I'm looking for, then I'm indifferent and I'm neutral. I think the decentralized structure is important, that mindset is important. And then what do we look for? We look for things that we have recurring revenue. We look for solid margins or the ability to have solid margins. We look for it's got to be a digital business. But the most important thing is. If we can't do something uniquely to create value, it won't be a deal we'll do. That's important. So it can't just be a good investment. It has to be a good investment that's made better because we have IGN to help market Humble Bundle. Humble Bundle was a great business. It would have been a great investment even if we didn't do anything with it. But I need to find that thing that we can uniquely do to create value. That's Probably the single most important question for me when I'm presenting.
1: Here. And that's what makes you different from a financial investor. That's just a pure financial investor, right? You have to have some operating or competitive edge post acquisition effectively. But no. the other thing I think what you're getting at is your decision process is a relative decision process. And so what your lens is for Vivek versus the presidents of each division that are kind of generating these ideas and these sourcing of opportunities is They have a more myopic view, even though they're obviously well-informed, than yours because you're judging it based on a relative decision between divisions and what you can see outside versus inside the company.
2: That's exactly right. And I think that's a very important and healthy process. I think having a volume of things to look at is very important and a key piece to what the company is doing. So some people have said to me, well, wow, it's a complex company. I go, where you see complexity... I see enormous deal flow, and I see almost an unlimited number of ideas and ways which we can put capital to work, which, in this environment, I think is very important. It's not that we need only one kind of thing. There's a pretty broad array of things in software and digital media that we could transact upon where we could create some unique value. And The other thing is, there is a misapprehension, because I've heard it, that we specialize in turnarounds. This is true, we can turn around a business, but when you look at what we have bought, we bought a bunch of growth assets that we've accelerated. I've mentioned Oopla, I mentioned Humble Bundle, I mentioned IP Vanish. We bought a business called Viper, which is in the endpoint business. We bought a business called Line2, which is a soft phone second line business, which is perfect for this environment. And then we bought a business called Ekehow, which helps design and deploy Wi Fi networks. So Those are all growth businesses where I like to see, you know, it's the old Berkshire Hathaway, fair businesses at great prices, great businesses at fair prices. Those are great businesses at fair prices. We have had, I wouldn't call them turnarounds, but I'll call them sound businesses that needed some kind of jumpstart. We talked about Mashable was one of them. IGN was one of them when we acquired that. Everyday Health, I would have even put into that category We bought Baby Center recently. We bought Spiceworks recently. These are all great brands where sometimes we can bring a new business model. Often, it's just changing ownership. One of the things that we see with venture-backed companies often is that they're trying to justify a valuation based on their last round that leads them to revenue at any cost, which is great until it's not. And that's where we can come in and say, hey, look, before you did that, you were a nice business. Maybe you weren't a unicorn, but you were a nice business and you would fit really nicely in our portfolio if you're willing to return to that nice business.
1: Yeah, I would say um, when people call and boast about being labeled a unicorn, which is effectively a moment in time valuation that may or may not be sustainable, and obviously has a valuation, obviously, of a billion dollars or more for a private company, people call me and say, that makes us a unicorn. And my response is always like, are those real? (laughs) Bring me one. I'd like to pet one. It's It's a fantasy. Don't you get it? You know, you have a lot of companies
2: that are looking to get one price once. When you're looking to get one price once, it leads to a certain set of decisions that are different In a publicly traded company that gets repriced every second of every day and needs to have sustainable, profitable earnings growth. And so, by virtue, I go again about ownership and how ownership can change business decision making. You know, when people ask me, well, what is it like to be a public company CEO? I go, look, I think it's really clarifying. You understand that you have a fiduciary responsibility to increase the per share price of the company, you focus on the inputs that over the long term help drive that. It isn't trying to manufacture a story or it isn't trying to get an unreasonable and excess valuation at one point. So I do think that point you made is an important one. So to your question about Humble Bundle.
1: You mentioned Humble Bundle a few times and it's a video game subscription business, but tell us about it a little bit more because I love the gaming business. I love video games of all kinds, mobile gaming. I think it's a great area. Tell me about Humble Bundle.
2: So with respect to Humble Bundle, it has a few components to it. There's a store, and the store is known for selling these bundles, bundles of games at attractive prices. It also has a subscription business called Humble Choice. And then it has a publishing business where we are an actual publisher of games, the bundle business is an interesting business. We like that business. We work with games publishers and add a charitable component to that. That's why it's called Humble Bundle. And so the game community and gamers themselves love the ethos of the bundles where you can actually choose how much you're giving to charity, how much you're giving to the games publisher, and how much you're giving to us. The choice business is a monthly subscription business. We also give a portion of that to charity. It's a monthly subscription business where we're essentially upfront. Renting IP from game publishers at a certain price, aggregating them into this bundle, and selling a subscription service to it. What we started to realize, and not probably unlike other streaming subscription services, what would happen when we could start to have IP in the monthly subscription that we owned or that we controlled? And that's what got us into the publishing business. It's why we publish games. We have really great insight into what works. We have a great marketing database, and we have indie publishers who really look kindly upon the company. And so we launched a publishing business. I think we're now up to 60 titles either launched or in development, so we're getting to some really good size. And just a note about indie games. So indie games are not AAA titles where you have huge volumes of unit sales. You're talking about half a million units at 40 bucks. that type of business, which if you have enough of those, it can scale pretty nicely. So we got into the publishing business really as a way to control some of the costs relating to the monthly selection as well as some of the IP that's in there. What we've also come to find is that we're very good at it. That we're picking a lot of winners, and we're working with some great indie developers. We worked with the team on Temtem. Temtem was a huge launch. It's done very, very well. So we're feeling some confidence in our ability to be in the publishing business The publishing business on its own does well. It helps us manage our costs and control in our publishing business. But there's a third dynamic that's now emerging, that as other larger players get into streaming services for games, they're looking for libraries. And we're building a pretty interesting library that can be licensed for inclusion in some of those platforms.
1: And monetized for a long tail. I want to get back to the acquisition strategy, though, because things come in waves there's certain moments of disruption where to be a buyer is very fortuitous and advantageous. Other moments where valuations are very high and you might as well just operate what you have and wait for the right moments and buy your time. Do you find that there are moments of softness or moments of gaps? And is this one of them or is this one of the opposites? Because I get calls all the time during these last few weeks saying, Arya, what are you seeing out there? There must be a great moment to buy things. Where's the distress? And I kind of say, there was about a week and a half of real distress and it closed up pretty quickly partially because of the fed and because the markets obviously rebounded nicely even before obviously well in advance of the economy so do you feel there's a steady state because of your focus or does it go up and down and how's the spigot how's the funnel right now
2: prior to the pandemic my answer would have been look it doesn't matter the environment we're operating in because we are willing to do growth to value we're willing to do carve outs we're willing to do venture back we're willing to do pretty much all transactions in which we think we can uniquely create value, I find that in any market, you're going to find those types of opportunities. So the history will tell you that no one market has been more or less favorable to J2's acquisition approach. What's happening with the pandemic, and I talked about this on my last earnings call a little bit, is that we have been hesitant, though this might be something we get over quickly, we have been hesitant to transact Where we can't meet the companies, where we can't physically be there. So, unless it was an opportunity that had developed prior to the pandemic that we are in a position to potentially close on, if it starts anew in this, I think we're more of the mindset of let's continue to run our portfolio. It's doing really well, it's generating cash, let's build our balance sheet, and then let's be opportunistic and thoughtful when we can visit those companies. So, this has been a small interruption in what has been a multi-decade program that has seen a couple of downturns and has seen bull market and seen a bear market. So we're built where we can do both. And I think you made a very important observation about the current environment, which is the public markets and private markets may be a little bit different. And then even inside the private markets, I think there's a little bit of a division being created. And I think one of the things Just as many households prove to not have much in the way of a safety net, many businesses don't have much in the way of a safety net. They run into liquidity issues really quickly. I think in those circumstances, there's always a, what's the alternative? What should we do? Can we raise capital? What would the capital be at? At what price are we better off finding a home inside of a strategic? So Certainly, those conversations happen in an environment like this, but until… We're in a position to actually visit. I think we're going to hold our powder for a little bit. But again, that may change because it depends on how long we're going to be in the
1: current state. Yeah. Well, how much dry powder do you have? Cash and obviously uh, you have an equity market cap that's available to you as well to use for acquisitions. And are you starting to think about playing offense or are you still in the kind of simmering mode? And how do you typically look at an acquisition? You fund it with cash or stock, or what's your preference? You
2: know, we, we typically are a cash buyer, we have always been a cash buyer. In terms of the powder, we've got little north of six hundred million dollars of cash and investments on the balance sheet. You know, we free cash flow anywhere from 350 million trailing 12 about 350 million dollars of free cash flow. So we'll continue to add cash to the balance. We've got a line of credit. Obviously, you have different forms of debt. So we would be a cash buyer. Generally we're buyers of our own stock, but we don't issue shares and deals. And if I felt like the currency was valued appropriately, I might use it. But right now in this environment, we don't think the currency is valued appropriately. That's code word for the stock is cheap. I think it is. It's an interesting market. But back to again, we are willing to transact, we're seeing a lot of interesting situations, we're planting a lot of seeds. I'm talking about the very near term when I say, you know, we're sort of holding back right now and saying, look, let's be able to actually get to know the company in person. But if this goes on for longer where that's not practical and we're seeing opportunities to put our shareholders' capital to work for great returns, we're going to go do it. Sometimes you're forced into these things out of your own comfort zone. And then when you're forced into it, you come to the recognition that, hey, this isn't half bad. (laughs) Why
1: weren't we doing it this way to begin with? That is the silver lining of scarcity, which is a book I've been reading about. In moments of scarcity, it brings out decisions and opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about in times of abundance. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is uh, something that is born out of necessity, but could be dictating the next chapter of our time here. In fact, I want to finish up by uh, going a little more personal, a little more fun. You know, you have been at home for over two months with a wonderful family. What have you missed outside of that environment the most? And what's the first thing that you're going to do when you're? really permitted to get outside again?
2: I love to play squash. So I haven't been able to get on a squash court for months now. And it was really my sort of go-to athletic activity and stress reliever. And so I really look forward to getting back onto a squash court. And both of my boys play squash. So it might be just with them or, or certainly with the friends with whom I play. I'd love to go to a Yankee game. If there's a Yankee game, I'm a huge New York Yankees fan. And so I'd love to be at a ballpark. Along those lines, I'd love to see some of my kids play sports. I love watching them play. They haven't been able to get out on a lacrosse field or a baseball field. And so I'd love to be able to do that. And then I'd love to have dinner and lunch with friends like you and catch up in a real way. And I miss that. I miss being with people. Um, I think we all do. Right? That is absolutely the very definition of human nature. So I'd love to be in a position yeah. to do
1: that. Well, how about I invite you to have dinner and a Yankee game together?
2: That would be fantastic.
1: I'll do that. And so while you're at home, everyone's consuming different forms of media, probably uh, overusing social media in some ways. And there's been TikToks with your kids. There's been Instagram lives. There's been all of those things. And what have you been consuming in the media side? What have you been watching? What have you been thinking about?
2: Well, I've been reading because you know this is one of those environments in which you can read. I started to actually... At your urging, started to do some audio books, but my commutes no longer in place, so I've gone back to the old-fashioned approach. And the book that actually I just reread—that I probably read twice before—which I think is the greatest business book ever written—and I think actually encapsulates J two really well as the Outsiders by William Thorndike. Great book. Is fantastic and gives me such confidence in our path and what we're doing. And I give it to every new employee, senior employee in the company. And so you got to read this book. Um, it's all about capital allocation. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Price We Pay is a great book. If you haven't read Dr. Marty McCarry, who happens to be the editor-in-chief of MedPage, one of our properties, but I think the definitive book on some of the policy issues and considerations in American healthcare. So really, really good read. And then I'm reading The Serve by Stephen Greenblatt. So it's another nonfiction book but it is, and I'm early, like I'm only 20% into this, so I don't have it all down, but it's basically this papal secretary who finds a copy of On the Nature of Things and how that changed the course of human history and introduced all new sorts of scientific and societal ideas. Anyway, I'm early in that, and that's interesting. And then what are we watching? We're watching The Crown. My wife had never seen The Crown, and I'd sort of stopped thinking that that would be one of those shows that we would watch together. And so now we're caught up. We're enjoying that. And then we're trying to be outside as much as possible, taking advantage of what seems to be the improving weather here in New York.
1: Yeah. A few years ago, I should say, at a conference that was canceled this year, at Cannes Lions, Tim Armstrong asked me about what my personal motto would be. And he said, you don't have to do this, but he said three words. And I thought to myself, and I saw in the distance – an image of something that triggered my thought process near a body of water. And I said, my motto is jump the rope. One of my mottos, if you could actually see something that looks to be, have a guardrail or restrictive, but you think you could do it, jump the rope. So what do you think, Vivek, is your motto?
2: The one I've used for myself and I've used with my kids is the person who said he never had a chance, never took a chance.
1: I like that. I like that. Well, I really appreciate your joining us on Kidron Casavec. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and it's at a great moment. And I really also appreciate the juxtaposition of our views here. You're <laughs> temporarily inside, and I'm now moving outside. And you can see what the world will look like when we get out to nature again, which has taken the upper hand, uh, rightfully so, in, in this moment with the planet really having its moment versus our normal patterns. And uh, we hopefully, obviously, it's a testament for humanity and friendship and connections and, and staying close together and we'll tackle this all together. And I, I really appreciate you doing this with us here.
2: Well, this was great. This is a real honor and privilege. You know, I'm a big fan of your podcast and really everything Kindred does, you produce fantastic content. It's a real service to our industry.
1: Yep, and we'll look for uh, the lion tree side of J2 as a collaboration and looking at plenty of deals out there and your capital allocation strategy has become available. Let's do it. Thanks, you gotta use right. that dry powder. Thanks Vivek. Appreciate it. Take care.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Audiation.